Yeah, they had us the first half, I'm not gonna lie. They had us. We weren't defeated, but they had us. But it took guts, it took an attitude. That's all it takes. That's all it takes to be successful is an attitude. And that's what our coach told us. He said, it's the media. You got something to say about what the... Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Off Court Podcast. I have stopped figuring out when these episodes were released in what order because I was thinking how we were going to start this season, like what our first episode is. And I don't think we should start with Tillman. We should probably start with Fidel, yes. Hockey, Don Cherry, something else, Tillman, probably this episode. I don't know. You're going to listen to this and be like, I do not know what these episodes are. We are recording this the day after your Toronto Raptors <laughs> were completely oh. curb-stopped by the Charlotte Hornets. We are all feeling very good right now about whatever I, trade rumors are abounding. I, I have no idea what Abdul is talking about. Um, I'm currently, I'm a Formula One fan, actually. I've never been a fan of these Raptors, this basketball that you speak of. Uh, I don't even know who the Bulls are. So yeah, I'm, I'm living in my little bubble. Don't Don't talk to me about basketball today. I'm not feeling good about it. Something came out today saying the Raptors uh, and Heat were in talks to trade for Kelly Olenek, Goran Dragic, and um, hmm. for Kyle Lowry, which is the worst trade in the history of trades ever, because Goran's never leaving the Heat, and Lowry uh, will is makes no sense to trade for um, for him anyway. Like they're both pretty old. It makes no fucking sense. Also, like we're gonna have two massive white guys. We're gonna have a fucking like. Aussie, and we're gonna have like a patchouli smelling fucking Canadian with long hair. I'm not really about that. We so. need like a we cursed. need like a cursed expansion team in like what in like Cincinnati or something where you can just put TD Kendrick Nunn, Kristaps mm, Porzingis, yeah. Myers Leonard. Like, um, <laughs> what is the best city? What's the most racist city in America? Oh, I guess I guess uh, you could do Kansas City. I you guess have Utah a Kansas already city has basketball a team. team. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Utah. Utah's already taken that mantle of being the most racist the, basketball team. Yeah, the Little Rock racists, um, or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah, whatever G, whatever G League team uh, can be made for Myers Leonard to find a home now that he's been uh, he's been. I'm let just go gonna very quickly heat. Google most anti-Semitic city. <laughs> Yeah. city in America. You know, it's funny. Like, we were going to, this season, talk, uh, you know, last season we did three episodes on Israel. This season we're, we're doing basically two and a half episodes on Cuba. And we were going to, I was going to make a joke about code switching, but now we're just talking about Jews again. So I don't <laughs> really know. Yeah. So today's episode is about <laughs> yeah. Cuba. That was a great transition, by the way. Hell uh, yeah. <laughs> today's episode is about Cuba again. Uh, this one's not about Fidel, but about it's about Cuban baseball, but specifically the the structure of Cuban sports, Cuba as an alternative, and the successes and failures of Cuba as it divested from the Americanization and sort of corporate imperialism of sports on the world stage. Once again, I'm going back to the well of Peter C. Bjarkman, uh, my yeah. least favorite favorite sports writer, a genius, an incredible writer, uh, incapable of holding a thread for more than a page. We had I ended out this episode with 56 pages of notes, which I trimmed down to 24, uh, and then it read like memento <laughs> in terms of flipping between different timelines. So you know, I was up late last night, sort of narrowing it down to something much cleaner. Uh, I was mad when I finished this last night, and I feel pretty good now. But it's just one of those things where you're, like, cutting these down. You're like, why do I have to do this? Like, why am I doing this sucks? Like, it should not be this hard to just organize notes. You know what I mean? Like, I was, I'm not going to repeat the things I was saying about Peter C. Bjarkman, but they yeah, were also, not kind. Yeah, also, I was going to say we should chill on any slander, because uh, he uh, he actually uh, passed away in 2018 <laughs> in Havana, Cuba, by the way. So he, he died uh, where he truly had his passion. He's also, like, one of the only sports writers who takes a very good view of cuba like popular sports writers who took a very good view of cuba and fidel not not hagiographic he wasn't like uncompromisingly good about he wasn't constantly opining how like cuba was better than everywhere else in the world or whatever but he took a very fair very measured very like um holistic analysis of like the cuban sports system its successes and failures as well as like in what ways did America or just like global imperialism play a role in making sure this could or could not succeed? So I'll go back to this idea that there is a long field of study about the role of baseball in the Cold War and also specifically the role of baseball in colonization and economic imperialism. You know, we don't 
usually think of baseball as this kind of sport, but it is like a very uniquely American product. As a result of that, it doesn't have the same like sort of global outreach that soccer does. It's actually far like a far more recent example of sports imperialism, specifically World War II, where baseball uh, was brought by the Americans to Japan, Korea, Taiwan. Uh, as a tool for like Americanizing the culture and sort of occupying and inculcating them into the world of like global uh, sports capitalism. So there is this popular view that that Fidel destroyed baseball in Cuba in the wake of his 1959 revolution. He actually actively worked to keep uh, American style corporate baseball on the island. It was one of the few things Mm -hmm. that even after, because, you know, we all know this, Fidel did not sort of go to Cuba with the idea of building a socialist revolution. He actually embraced socialism as a result of Americans being mad that he did a revolution in Cuba, despite the fact that, like, he was hopeful for, like, support, and he saw that, like, oh, the Americans should see commonality in our struggle the way they did when they overthrew the British monarchy, right? Uh, The Americans did not, in fact, see it that way. Um, I was going to say, actually, in uh, so in part of my re- obviously, uh, Abdul literally went to the trenches for this research. I just had to do a bit of my own preliminary, and I watched uh, this hour long documentary from the 80s uh, from the BBC about Cuba. So you can imagine what kind of view it has, although it is quite uh, uh, a little bit more broad in its view, I'm sure, than most American commentary about Cuba. But interestingly enough, they talk about Cuba's baseball manufacturing plants after the blockade. And they actually, so all of their sports athletics uh, gear before the blockade had to come from America. Once the blockade started, they had to basically develop an industry for creating baseballs and other athletic equipment. Partially also because, like you said, baseball hadn't proliferated into the Soviet nations. It was just where America was present. So the Soviet countries that were giving aid to Cuba had no baseballs to give them. And in the interview with like an athletic strainer in Cuba that's talking about this, he thanks America for their imperialism, for inspiring Cuba to develop its own like baseball manufacturing plants, its own, ba- its own baseball mitt manufacturing plants, they, which they would have never had weren't weren't there for uh, a blockade the and the success of cuban baseball is also like way more impressive when you realize that that team was playing with um, aluminum bats and stuff because that's what they manufactured it actually got worse because as the embargoes got deeper post um, soviet collapse they actually lost the ability to keep manufacturing the stuff that they moved to domestic production which sucks yeah Bjorkman describes like Cuba's relationship to baseball as a good metaphor for how Fidel's revolution was always clearly a work in progress and just constantly adaptive. And he also lays the blame at Fidel's feet for not having a clear sort of succession plan. Like, say what you will about Raul, but like he's he's nowhere near as adaptable as Fidel was, right? Fidel was able to sort of adapt to any sort of crisis or conflict or issue and uh, through his like extremely good statesmanship and extremely keen eye for uh, a skill at politicking able to like make the best out of any situation right even in the the worst times in cuba uh, part of that was force of personality part of that was just he was politically you know quite literally a genius and so yeah like you know baseball sort of is a, a metaphor or cuban sports in general is a metaphor for cuba's you know shifting <laughs> shifting position following the revolution Before the revolution, baseball had been on the island for like quite a long time. It sort of came out during the first war of independence, 1870s, 1880s. Uh, It was actually sort of as we saw with like India and cricket, a way that that people in Cuba were able to like fight Spanish colonial rule. And when the Spanish were driven out and replaced with the Americans, you know, it, it became a good place to like actually quiet people who are upset with American intervention. If we beat them on the baseball field, maybe they'll do less of a revolution here. It was a good way to like get that energy out, so to speak, for angry Cubans who are mad at being occupied by it's it's worth thinking that Cuba has actually not had like a government that worked in the interests of Cuban people uh, till Fidel's revolution uh, after World War II. Yeah, it was basically quasi imperialist for a lot of this time based on sugar imports. Like I think people forget that a little bit and also i'd like to remind people that uh spanish people are white people um, <laughs> and and we should normalize uh, reverse racism against them based on this history <laughs> and that's that's it that's all i have to say and yeah like it's it's crazy right because there there's all these myths that follow um 
that follow revolutions that suggest that what was there before was like perfect, right? Like you see this when you see like, look at these women without hijabs in Afghanistan or like, look at these women at university in Iran or like Cuba was an integrated baseball paradise. It was a promised land where whites and blacks could play side by side in racial harmony. All three of these things are untrue. Like there's a wealth thing here. There is American intervention that led to these revolutions. There is like strong reasons as to why there was uh, you know, Taliban takeover of Afghanistan that you could lay the blame at the feet directly at like, Global imperialism, uh, I'm not going to both sides it, but both the Soviets and Americans fucked up. They both pulled out last minute it, to, to leave both of these regions com- completely on their own. Like, from what I understand, Roosevelt decided to, you know, have a position of neutrality against Cuba, which allowed it to have this quote-unquote democracy rise with Batista. So it's like, we, we, we often blame their influence, but it's their influence and then their removal from the region that can leave these places completely in shock and lead to some kind of revolution yeah that's basically like the cycle of imperialism is america will do imperialism america will pull out or you know there will be a revolution there america will absolve itself of any responsibility in creating worse conditions than what existed before and what existed before was already awful i.e afghanistan and then use this new paradigm that you know, they'll distance themselves from this new paradigm and then use it as justification to go and invade again. That is this, like, very specific cycle where it's, like, it's it's trading on this idea of, like, manufactured nostalgia and freedom that never existed because we have photos of, like, women in miniskirts in Tehran, which yeah. is, like, I... I mean, honestly, yeah, like, women's suffrage, very good. The conditions of most women in Iran at that time. Very bad. Like, <laughs> it's it sort of, it's as simple as that. And so, yeah, like, uh, baseball or Cuba was not an integrated sports paradise. Uh, blacks only went to the Havana Pro League because that was the only employment available. And it was the only ticket out of island poverty and into American professional sports. And even before 1947, that ticket was only the blackball circuits and Negro Leagues. Most recruits into pro ball uh, during World War II, etc., were white-skinned only, and a handful of Afro-Cubans did slip through the color line because there was confusion about their racial identity, and they weren't sure if they were white or black. Um, I'm not going to repeat the words that they used to describe these people, but they yeah, were not it's, good. It's funny because the BBC doc I watched, which is from the 80s, is also using, I'm assuming, a lot of the words uh, that you're omitting from your speech right now one of them is uh, starts with an m and rhymes with uh, gelato of, yeah, by the way. yeah and uh, colonel jaime marine under the direction of uh, colonel fulgencio <sighs> batista uh who was the dictator in cuba until the revolution fuck that guy be burns in hell uh created something called the dgd the direction general de deporte sports ministry which was cuba's first official sports ministry and it was its role was to pretty much centralized sports in Cuba and create a like pipeline into American sports, right? This was done under direction and conversation with American business interests and specifically the MLB. The MLB, by the way, we'll get to it, extremely imperialist, uh, horrifying. They did set this up and it, it was basically there to, to farm people into American pro sports. And it also led to the creation of the Havana Sugar Kings, which uh, we're not going to talk about the Sugar Kings too much because we honestly would be worth its own episode in terms of like their role in Cuban history and and stuff like that. But yeah, the Sugar Kings were their AAA affiliate Uh, in Mm. Cuba. The amateur world series happened in Cuba a ton and stuff like that. Like there was a legit, they were a legitimate powerhouse for, for a time in minor league baseball. Um, And they actually did win a championship after the, a pennant after the revolution and then we're immediately shipped out of cuba forever and so yeah like that's that's basically the the starting point for cuban baseball or just cuban sports in general right i'm gonna say baseball you can apply that to most sports in cuba i'm just gonna throw that out there right now you know where it's always been sort of subdominant to other imperial power uh, and that included sports as well uh, it also is not a racial paradise and, you know, most of the whites who were recruited into the MLB system uh, definitely owned slaves, or their families did. Now, after Fidel's revolution, we're not a revolutionary podcast, so you know we're not going to talk about the revolution too much, but there was a revolution in Cuba, uh, if you didn't know. 
yeah. uh, where Fidel Castro <laughs> and and Che Guevara and a bunch of other people sort of took over with no idea of what they were doing other than we hate Batista. And they promised like an equitable overhaul of the entire social system. The idea of this was to like sort of give greater hope and benefit to rural peasants and laborers, most of whom, by the way, were Afro-Cubans and most who were held in some form of indentured servitude or slavery up until the revolution. And like baseball and sports was part of this. It was part of this idea of building a non-material society, but Fidel wanted to keep American baseball on the island. He saw how important the MLB, the Sugar Kings, this like very specific facet of like sports was so important to Cubans holistically, not just white Cubans, but like Afro-Cubans as well. And Fidel actually fought very hard to keep capitalist American sports in Cuba. It was one of his, like, big things. However, that did not work, right? Washington cut diplomatic ties in 1961 and basically cut off the idea of doing more uh, winter seasons or, like, special games or championships in Cuba. And even when this happened, Fidel promised Cuban MLB players that they would still be allowed to pursue their careers um, in America and come back. That was a one-sided promise, obviously. Yes, it uh, was. <laughs> because there, there's something called defections, and uh, many Cubans had to do that to even move to America. I'm assuming we're going to get into that a little bit later. The defections basically started here with players worried about not being able to come back home if they went back to Cuba, or go back to America if they went back to Cuba, and they just decided to stay in the U.S. And then Eisenhower's trade embargo uh, overlapped pretty much uh, on the week with MLB Commissioner Ford Frick's embargo on American players traveling to Cuba. The two were almost definitely, this is conjecture, the two were almost definitely done in conversation with each other, where Frick announced the embargo and then Eisenhower announced his trade embargo. And he was, uh, my understanding, again, apropos of nothing, is that Frick was directed to do so by the State Department. And then, you know, by September, before uh, Eisenhower's like trade embargo, Frick had already been talking about withholding of American before. All this was done while Fidel's Cuban Sports Commission had been working to ensure like that Cuba would have enough resources to meet payrolls for like American players in the Cuban league. They were like making sure they were getting assurances from finance minister Che Guevara (laughs) that money would be made available for this like extremely capitalistic purpose. And, you know, finally like Frick pushed it too far and the trade embargo was going to happen. And uh, league officials in Havana under the direction of Fidel said, all right, you know what, fuck it. We're not letting American big leaguers or minor league uh, players uh, in the Cuban leagues. Just fuck it. We're not doing this. Yeah, in a way, these are things that escalated hostilities, right? Especially the baseball thing. Like, you you can't draw, like, a direct line. Like, history is not that easy. But, like, it definitely did not help. And, like, you know, Fidel understood he wasn't going to get he wasn't going to get anything he wanted from the Americans, but he was hopeful that they could, he was hopeful they could meet halfway on a couple of issues that would sort of keep tensions pretty cool. And baseball would make sense as that, as that place. When you think about everything that you just said in terms of their integration into each other in finals, uh, in finals play, as well as player movement. It's, it's kind of hilarious that the commit, the commissioner probably had his hands tied when he had to make this decision from what I understand. Basically this, yeah, it's a hundred percent that's the that's the the issue, and like you know, there was enough understanding that like Cuba would have to engage with like a capitalist American system to try and keep tensions cool. Baseball's a good one because Cuban baseball players were good, obviously big money makers for the MLB. Native Cubans loved baseball, they wanted to keep the league competitive, and the Americans tanked it not. Not um, not the Cubans. This also, by the way, affected the shipment of baseball equipment to the island. So league, uh, Cuba had put in an order for 500 dozen baseballs for the new season with the Rawlings Sporting Goods Corporation. And blocking that order would have basically killed baseball or in Cuba forever. Like, there was no way they could even, like, reverse engineer what they needed because they didn't have anything they wanted. But since Cuba sent payment before the Eisenhower embargo, Rawlings was able to complete the transaction after petitioning the State Department. And the Rawlings baseballs were the last American consumer item to reach Cuba before the embargo took effect, which is pretty cool, actually. And it was immediately Mm -hmm. followed by a law in Cuba requiring fans to return balls hit into the grandstands to the ump to forestall any potential shortage. 
they, this would be this would be worded, I assume, back then as more rationing by people who are anti-Cuba when it's actually a very responsible thing to do, and we shouldn't just give away uh, baseballs, baseball fields anymore. <laughs> Pretty much, actually, like yeah, you could see this as like, look at how bad the Cubans have it. They can't even keep this little boy in Cuba can't even keep the fucking game ball and uh, into the grandstand. It's like he could if you know the Americans didn't declare a full-on embargo of all Cuban. Like I know it's such a low-stakes thing compared to I don't know withholding of food, uh, aid supplies, other resources, things people need to like farm and feed themselves. But it's like you know the image of it is so you know poignant and like able to be weaponized but like you know of course the context is this is america's fault not fidel's and it goes both ways because america introduced baseball to cuba during the 1800 or during the 1900s as part of its quasi-imperialist mission to like half control cuba while it was like figuring out its own shit right people need to remember that around this time way before the revolution and way before batista like america was still figuring out like civil rights and slavery and like that was dividing the country and controlling cuba was almost like an extension of that in congress so the the fault is twofold in terms of giving it to america and baseball did exist before then but the americans made it a national pastime like that was a big achievement of american imperialism in cuba once um fidel nationalized the sugar barons (laughs) uh you know plantations uh, mm-hmm. Almost overnight, the AAA Sugar Kings Minor League Club relocated secretly. Secretly, um, This was before the trade embargo. Uh, and the nationalization is probably what led to the trade embargo, by the way. But on July 8th, 1960, while on a road trip to Miami, the Sugar Kings were closed down by the league's Montreal-based front office and relocated literally overnight to, North- to Jersey City uh, and just were not allowed to come back. Of course, between the July 8th removal of the Sugar Kings and the October 19th trade embargo, <laughs> uh, Fidel was still vocal about allowing Cuban big leaguers to travel freely and continue performing with their MLB teams. He really, really felt strongly about making sure that this could continue. Uh, he, of course, did not succeed. First and foremost, professional baseball did not expire in Cuba in 1961. It just transformed itself, right? In line with Fidel's plan to transform sports in general, which is, again, super important to consider. This is like, you know, yeah, it's... Fidel did not kill anything. He just took it far away from the American idea of what it was. And there was no abolition of professionalism either, right? This idea that you had no baseball stars and stuff like that. Nah, that's that's all a lie. Don't Don't think about that. But yeah, like, if one considers someone a professional who earns uh, a living for what he does, and if the perfection of that skill is the most important task in his daily life, professionalism did not disappear in Cuba at all. So Fidel's, like, first step was to replace uh, the DGD, the Cuban Sports Ministry, the Batista-era Cuban Sports Ministry, with um, something called INDER, the National Institute of Sports, Physical Education, and Recreation. Uh, this is huge. Inder is still around. It is the Cuban Sports Ministry. It is the the go-to organizational system of sports in Cuba. Uh, super crucial to think about. You'll see why. Its goal, uh, ostensibly, was the transition of organized sports activity from a profit-making business to a public right. That's a big one. An instrument of public health in the newly emerging society. Um, this is also what manages the Cuban Baseball League. Uh, and it was like, you know, the idea was to like create a healthy population capable of military defense in the revolution. But like, it was also just to like make it so that people could have a sense of ownership over their own fucking sports, right? Like, that's the most important part. It started by like replacing advertising in ballparks with like communist slogans. Uh, Fidel coming out and throwing his own first pitches or joining pickup games on like Havana mm-hmm. streets. And it's, like, tried to transform, like, baseball and other sports from a, like, pastime into a political act and a political platform, right? To, like, tie Cuba to baseball extremely deeply, which is, uh, yeah, also crucial because, you know, for very obvious reasons, they needed to have something to, like, stake their claim on here. Uh, in America, specifically in Miami, <laughs> there was an accusation that Fidel politicized baseball with the creation of Inder, and his forced, like he forced a linkage of the game to his revolution and its radical goals. Fidel took his 
plan for Ender from America. <laughs> um, mm. Like his, it was a modified version of the way Americans use baseball to uh, disperse American values through like Asia and Latin America and like push patriotism at home. Because the other thing with Ender that I think is super crucial to think about is, you know, there's a story of like how Cuban doctors, how Cuban doctors are sent all over the world to like heal people and to train new doctors and to, you know, sort of fix countries that have been overlooked by the WHO or by like capitalist uh, intervention, stuff like that. Yeah, and I be- I believe there was like a buzz a buzzy viral story about that at the beginning of the pandemic that Cuban doctors were being sent to like Wuhan to deal with the coronavirus. Yeah, which is baller by the way. People don't realize Cuba does this with all of its major trainees, right? Like Cuba does this with engineers. They do this and they do this with athletes and coaches. Cuba sends coaches and trainers to third world countries to train you know locals and like the best way to play boxing right or the best way to box or to play baseball or to uh, do track and stuff like that that's why all these tiny african nations have inexplicable a lot of tiny Mm -hmm. african nations have inexplicable gold and silver medals in uh boxing and track it's i mean part of it is like a country's own you know population like their willingness to uh invest in it but a lot of it is actually cuba as well in fact that's fidel took his whole idea of like sending people abroad to help the world from the way americans tried to use imperialism to do the same thing of course with Inder, it's like far more altruistic right cuba's not asking for a pipeline in exchange for aid or support right they took a mandate of like teaching rather than just going in and supporting and then leaving without any sort of infrastructure in place to continue that work once they were gone right american aid is very much built on the idea of forced sustainability yeah or literally i was going to say parasitic exactly or literally throwing a fucking government over you know like they uh, the installation of Batista, like via sort of this neutrality point of view from Roosevelt, can be seen as aid by that government because they like gifted them democracy by destabilizing the country. It's like it's completely contrasted. One actually is aid, and the other one is imperialism. Yeah, it's like a creation of dependence. And Cuban Cuban exports of like Cuban exports of professionals um, was meant to not create independence, but to build infrastructure. And the two are, are crucially different, right? It's that old, um, it's like the Thomas Sankara thing of like, um, don't, don't give us grain, give us hose and a book on how to farm. Like mm-hmm. that was his goal. And that's what Cuba in a lot of ways really embodied. And the secondary aim of this was to strike down a global notion of sporting events being operated by private commercial interests, uh, as well as, demonstrate that athletes don't need to like fight for awards that are entirely material in nature, right? The joy should be, or the goal should be the joy of competition and the thrill of victory, not the pursuit of a lucrative paycheck. Cuban sportsmen uh, and women would be full-time athletes financially supported by the government. And Cuba would like send coaches like they did like doctors to the third world, but also these elite facilities that they built for their best athletes were available uh, to the public when the athletes weren't training there. There was no distinction between who could use the best facilities or not. It was a matter of time allocation more than it was like you're not allowed to come here ever. It was actually called the Sugarcane Curtain, by the way, uh, Cuban, the Cuban embargo, which is funny because the curtain was pulled by the U.S., not um, of course, yeah, not the Cubans. I, it's uh, it's interesting to hear, you know, I, I just want to emphasize this for people that like, Olympic athletes aren't compensated here either. And I guess you could in turn say that like sponsorships and capitalist opportunities is what sort of provides them compensation. But when you actually think about it in Cuba, they take care of their athletes better when you consider that they actually monetarily support them. From my own research, um, they're given like homes as opposed to apartments where most Cubans live. Uh, They're provided like additional rations and given drivers to help them actually be able to meet all, all their activities while like attending school and being encouraged to to continue school while being athletes and then just like compare that to the way ncaa athletes are treated in america or how olympians are fucking compensated in america and it's kind of completely stark when you consider that you know oh totally because it's like one of these things in regards to in regards to stuff like this it's because we only see professional athletics as being a paradigm of poverty or extreme wealth 
uh, there's no idea of just like a journeyman uh, athlete, or if there is, it's because we see them as failures, right? Like look at minor yeah. league basketball or like, you know, second tier football, American football is like good examples of this. These people are treated like athletes are treated very well in Cuba. And like, yeah, Cuba, because of various embargoes, has suffered through a lot. But like it guarantees a minimum caloric intake, housing and several other things for native Cubans. Like that is also sort of crucial to think about is our our paradigm of poverty is what starvation brought on by U.S. trade sanctions and the collapse of the Soviet Union. You can't say that like people living in homes equals or having guaranteed, you know, a guaranteed minimum standard of living or whatever like that. Where does that fit into your paradigm, right? Like they're doing the best with what they have and are able to guarantee like health and safety and especially training and education for every Cuban. Basically all these like, you know, not all, but like many of the of the myths about Cuba are based on you know, the other side of the sugarcane curtain, not not what's actually happening in Cuba. As a result of this, also, like, Americans missed out on some of the best baseball ever played because Cuba's sports development system, especially for baseball, was legendary. Like, absolutely amazing. And, like, yeah, North Americans thought, like, well, if they were, if the Cuban athletes were pros, they would be earning the same salaries as, like, MLB players. Cuban team manager and future commissioner, Higinio Velez, said, uh, he has this great quote that said, amateurs? I suppose you mean that our players are not paid with P-holes or Soriano in the U.S. earn. But by that standard, I assume you're prepared to tell me that school teachers and college professors in your country are also amateurs. <laughs> they also don't earn the same as top professional athletes or movie stars, do they? No, no, our players are indeed are professionals. I will say there is uh, over reading like several books and articles for our Cuban episodes. The one thing I realized is that um, they also the National Law five four six of nineteen sixty seven also removed admission fees for sporting events. Period. Oh, which was very interesting. Um, I don't know how that works. My assumption is it's a first-come, first-served basis. I mean, imagine it this way, right? You just get let into a park, and, uh, you know, you get a cookout, and it's like a big tailgate, and they just Mm -hmm. stop letting people into the park, and then once the game starts, everyone who was let into the park gets to go to see a game. Uh, Or it's like a a raffle system where you just, your number is called up, and... uh, Oh, yeah, I can attend the game on Saturday. Mm-hmm. It's just like a wait list or whatever, and you can only join the wait list once per season. Honestly, I would love that. I would love if mm-hmm. it was just one uh, Raptors game per year. I would love that. That would that would be fine, right? Because everyone deserves to get to see the Raptors play. Not this year. Not this year. We won't year. talk about that. No, no. We're, we're, this is timeless. As far as we're concerned, the Raptors are playing in Toronto right now. So, yeah, like, Inder uh, expanded their baseball presence on the island. Uh, They made a goal of, like, spreading high-level competition there. And, like, the nationalization of of Cuban sport is basically a one-to-one with the nationalization of Cuban sugar production, uh, including the manipulation of uh, said industry for stoking national pride and building national stature. And, like, Americans did pay attention to this. Uh, Eugene McCarthy, former senator and presidential candidate from Minnesota, had this joke where he'd say constantly, where he would suggested that the U.S.-Cuba uh, mess in the Cold War would be solved if they just gave Fidel the post of MLB commissioner, which, right. by the way, would be awesome. <laughs> that would be hilarious and uh, and a, a great timeline to be a part of. That's some, like, watchman shit. <laughs> it's worth very quickly getting into structure before uh, we sort of break at the half. Um, Because the structure of Cuban baseball is super important to talk about. So structure is not based on teams the way we have it in America. It's based on the geography of Cuba. Um, Players perform for generally the same team during the entire duration of their career. Uh, So each province has its own team with a nickname attached. The Cienfuegos Elephants, the Vila Clara Orange Men, the Camagüey, I'm sorry, I'm terrible at Spanish, Potters. 14 provincial teams plus two added ball clubs for the two big cities uh, or for the big cities, the Industrialis Blue Lions and the Metropolitanos Warriors. The Industrialis, by the way, is also just the Lakers of uh, fucking Cuban baseball. They've claimed the most championships with the Lions coming up. The Industrialis Blue Lions yeah, have won a dozen title banners. And then the second most is the Santiago de Cuba Ball Club, which has only won four. So the plus side of this system where like people are actually and all the players are from that region, by the way, that's super important. All the players come from the region. They play for that region's team. 
Uh, and that's what they do mostly for their entire life is they play for that region's team and, and they develop in there and they develop other people in there as well, right? Like they mentor other players from that region. There is deep-seated loyalties and rivalries here because people are like fanatic because it's so regional and these are like always going to be hometown boys. Uh, the downside is that it's extremely <laughs> imbalanced. Like there's no free agency. Larger provinces are obviously better off, usually have heftier talent. Usually better teams by population, like Havana and Santiago are just by far the most successful teams. Mm -hmm. uh, they've made changes recently to try and address that, um, but like that's obviously Cuban baseball's smallest problem right now. But people watch it like religiously, like uh, you know these like seven game playoff matches and stuff like that basically paralyze the country. And they're always uh, Eastern Western zones competing. So there's that, right? Like they do have a conference system and stuff like that. And people, yeah, people will tune in on TV. They'll listen to it on the radio. But like when it is baseball time and especially baseball playoff time, Cuba's ballparks in terms of how they're structured are pretty much the same way they were in the 1960s. Non-video scoreboards, concrete bleachers, electric lights, uh, not LEDs. They were mostly built in the 60s and 70s following the revolution or before the revolution. And they're all pretty much identical. Construction crews were part of like student training and field worker training as part of the government's like public works projects. And most of these stadiums are named for 1950s revolutionary military heroes or battle sites. And clubs play in these stadiums, but they also play a small amount of contests in smaller venues and villages and stuff like that to get people interested and to like make sure that again everyone gets a chance to watch baseball in 2012 they scrapped their divisional structure in favor of a single 16 team league and divide like the season into two halves of 45 games each uh and the league at this point now only has eight surviving clubs we'll get into the reasons why and the best players from each team compete to be on the national team that is also crucial so cuba fields its national and olympic teams through this system of like of its like national league, they, you know, they're basically glorified tryouts ultimately for international team and, and like, you know, the Cuban team abroad, which is super dope. Cause it's like, it's not one of those things in America where it's like, there's a whole bunch of conditional factors based on like, you can play in the Olympics or whatever. No, it's structured in such a way that the quote unquote off season is when they're playing internationally. They're basically playing baseball year round. It's a lot more egalitarian than our Olympic call-ups system, for sure. Also, uh, just to quickly go back to the fact that like our, their, ma their major baseball teams go and play in these other towns. They're basically doing the fucking Tim Hortons, like, Hockey Town, Timmy's, Canada, whatever fucking shit, but for free for people without corporate sponsorship and year-round. Like, they're not making fucking people raffle for a random hockey game to be played in their fucking stadium when these small towns are also aching for their national fucking pastime to come by their shitty little towns. Sorry, but in Cuba, they respect those shitty little towns a lot more than in Canada from what I'm realizing. Are you into video games or ever wondered why something like video games is even important to be discussed, to be listened to? If so, check out Buffs and Nerfs, another podcast from the Mind Refinery. Hosts Andrew and Sam will talk about the latest from the gaming world and dive deep into the culture of games. From the game mechanics of Destiny 2, which... God, stop Bungie making me spend money and play your fucking video game. I gotta do research for this podcast. Uh, to the future of cloud gaming, they explore the relevance of gaming through personal experience and their impact on society. That was a great episode, too. I highly recommend listening to this podcast. I'm just going to list off uh, rapid fire a bunch of achievements in Cuban sports, then we can talk about it. A string of eight amateur World Series titles in the 1970s, a five-decade string of either winning or at least reaching the championship game in more than 50 straight major international tournaments, 53 in total. Between the 1987 Pan Am Games in Indianapolis and the 1997 Intercontinental Cup in Barcelona, the Cuban squad claimed victory in 159 straight individual games played during major international uh, baseball federation tournaments, IBAF. Cuban teams uh, captured three gold and two silver medals in five official Olympic baseball tournaments, as well as walking off with 18 of the 23 championship banners contested in IBAF baseball World Cup matches. Cuba's uh, individual game-winning performance since 1962 still stands at more than 90%. 
Um, in individual performances, Santiago outfielder Alexei Bell uh, blasted record seven bases loaded home runs in the league's 90-game uh, schedule during Cuban National Series number 49. Uh, Faustino Corrales uh, hit a 22-strikeout game, two above the big league record, posted on five occasions, and did it in half the amount of time that it took the MLB the players Jeez. to do it. 63 career shutouts achieved by Bradio Vincent Vinette, which matches the live ball era of Major League uh, Major Leaguer Warren Spawn in the MLB. Yet Vinette reached the figure in about one third of the number of starts that Spawn needed. And between 1987, yeah, 1987, 1997, 159 consecutive win streak. So there is there is sort of your indication of where Cuba is uh, was on the world stage baseball wise. And I, I mean, aside from all of that, they were dominate not dominating, but they were consistently appearing in uh, medal m- medals podiums in the Olympics. Um, and el- basically, like being one of the most successful third world countries in the Olympics throughout the 20th century. So Cuba was fucking winning most of this time. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, it's uh, it's extraordinary actually when you really think mm-hmm. about it. It is. Um absolutely incredible in terms of like how they managed to transform cuba into a global powerhouse of sport it is unbelievable few stars abandoned the baseball system the socialist baseball system whereas like other caribbean nations like venezuela the dominican republic and puerto rico which only saw success when they fielded national teams from people who went to the mlb uh but have been stripped of their local baseball operations by like transfers of homegrown talent to the American majors, Cuba maintained like an aggressive dominance. And this was also one of the only ways they could assert themselves on the world stage outside of the U.S. blockade. Naturally, the U.S. um, hated uh, this, and there is a long history of them trying to get Cuba ousted from the IBAF, uh, petitioning and pressuring countries under threat of sanctions to deny visas to Cuban athletes. It was part of their blockade was was something called the sports embargo, basically aimed at striking down any Cuban sports-related victories that could not be countered by less talented American squads on the playing field. Despite this, uh, Cuba maintained its iron grip on the IPAF World Cup title. Yeah, basically, now we move on to the dark time. There's a couple of reasons, and this is, by the way, this these dark times are focused on American interference. I, we do need to emphasize that this will be completely based on American interventionism. I kind of fucking hate, like, you know, there was that, like, that viral post on Twitter at the beginning of the pandemic with all the shelves in Cuba. Like, there's, it, it's oh, so Benny funny that, Johnson. E- yeah, even after, like, n- relations are quote unquote normalized with Cuba, there's this, like, running theme in American zeitgeist to, like, diss Cuba for its, like, quote unquote socialism. And I, I find it quite hilarious that, now we're still in a spot where like America can control Cuba with all these defections that we're going to get into. It's it's just like after going over all the success, I don't really have much to say because I'm kind of already depressed uh, to discuss the result of all this. Yeah, it's uh, it's upsetting. I'll put it that way. So the collapse of the Soviet Union brought on something called the special period in the time of peace, which was Fidel's way of describing Basically, a public health disaster brought on by starvation. Uh, of course, it didn't need to be this way, but the economic embargo the U.S. put on Cuba meant that Cuba could not sustain itself through the U.S. Uh, through the Cuban-Soviet supply system and pipeline. And of course, there was famine. This isn't Fidel's fault. This is America's fault, because many countries, if not the U.S., would be very willing to support Cuba in these periods. Or maybe Cuba could just export its product in exchange for goods and services and money. It's it's also depressing uh, just for a little bit of history. Like in the 90s, Clinton, Bill, Bill Clinton was actually close to trying to start normalizing relations with Cuba. But then after Cuban activists flying from Florida were like shot down by Castro at the time, he like completely backed uh, down in Congress from like ever normalizing relations with Cuba. So we kept getting very close to getting to where we are now. And maybe if it would have been done early enough, then what we're about to discuss with Cuba wouldn't happen. But yeah, America, uh, good to America. Uh, were those activists, uh, you know, were they activists or were they agitators trying to uh, destroy a country because they're fam- like, not, not that Fidel should have done that, uh, but yes. like also like, if you're already on shaky ground because you're under a famine and then like a bunch of people show up in your country 
trying to start a revolution, uh, like the the circumstances are understandable, even if the execution is fairly reprehensible. What do Cubans in Miami really ultimately want, right? They want to return to the time where their family could own slaves again, or like plantations and shit like that. They they want to take away the one thing that dark-skinned Cubans are thankful for for the revolution, uh, where it is right now post-Fidel, in that they just aren't slaves anymore. They don't really care that Raul is like in power right now because the revolution did something material for them. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. And it's like, you know, Fidel, like basically as Cuban baseball started waning, Fidel was very smart about it. He, uh, when they lost uh, two games during the 2009 world baseball classic, he released an essay for all Cubans called we are the ones to blame where he was philosophical about the set, uh, setback and mm-hmm. uh, aimed criticism at the manager and talked about, you know, the new leadership of Cuba is very poor and is like, we are no longer able to innovate against a capable ad- adversary who's constantly innovating. Uh, like he saw the direction was going before he died. Right. And he was also very in tune with his people. Uh, and like, you could say this essay was also like a call to, to Cubans to understand that the world was changing and that this, you know, revolutionary system he built, was not sustainable. Like Cuba, uh, Fidel was very forward-looking, and at this time, like his, like Fidel's health, uh, the myth of Cuban baseball and vulnerability, were all collapsing side by side. So player defections were also basically had become an epidemic at this point. 2009-2011, Cuba lost the IBAF World Cup tournament. Tourism opening up from Canada and Europe, plus uh, an opening up of like exiled Miami based Cubans to come back to the country. Uh, a lot of this were ways to try to overcome the special period in the time of peace, right? So uh, Cubans were becoming far more aware of the outside world and what it promised to offer them in theory, uh, obviously not execution. Uh, you're basically seeing the richest people come here with gifts and money and uh, tips for Cuban resorts. It's like one of those things where it's like, you're only seeing the best of this world, not the worst. You can't really blame Cubans for being enchanted by it. Like, it was extremely hard in the 90s and early 2000s. It was, like, horrific. But this also exposed the athletes to mind-bending financial rewards their talents might be earning them in Asia or North America. And then Inder uh, tried to isolate players from this on road trips to forestall possible defections, meaning that players were all then pissed at, like, more oppressive control. And now Cuban stars were being exposed to better stadiums as well as the IBAF shifted where it was holding its events to, like, the, the big leagues in America and other places. And there was no longer this isolation thing. But now we get into something, the human trafficking element of Cuban baseball. Jesus it basically like everything I know everything doesn't go back to like Jeffrey Epstein, but everything does go back to human trafficking of vulnerable people. Like it's yeah. pretty much the what we don't talk about enough is that basically half the world's industries are built on the insane human trafficking of uh, of people who are willing to do shitty jobs <laughs> other places or just who aren't allowed to move. Like this is why open borders is important. It's like, yeah, I don't care if Charles Coach wants open borders. It's like the people will always try to cross the border and it's like you can do it safely and organize them here or you can not right let them die in transit yeah and also globalism just won't allow that to stop happening because like the very essence of like globalist capitalism is moving people around to shift money around properly for like first world countries it doesn't like globally create a neutral sort of like a uh, uh, playing field for countries it perpetuates old capitalism but on a global scale so Human trafficking is just an essential part of this. Like, basically, just to clarify for everybody listening, like, what Abdul was talking about is migrant mine workers in other countries, um, even, like, you know, labor camps in Asia and things like that. These are all part of the human trafficking network. Yeah, 100%, right? And it's like, it's not just coyotes in Mexico. It's it's a system of, of human trafficking that extends from, you know, the southern tip of Chile all the way up to the northern climes of Canada. The Bolsa Negra, or black bag phase of of human trafficking for baseball players, which is, uh, it was crime syndicate controlled and extremely high tech. And it was like, it's where players would be smuggled out of Cuba and not just players, but also family of Miami, Miami exiles and a bunch of other stuff in exchange for money in the future, basically money. If they made it to the big leagues and if they didn't, well, we come and break your legs. They hired experts in Marine navigation, bribery, forgery, and money laundering. 
uh, plus uh, intimate knowledge of complex immigration policies in several Caribbean countries. It also resulted in the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands, of Cuban citizens when ransoms were not paid, uh, by the way. Now, Bolsa Negra baseball style involved prized prospects, promised to bring any Cuban off the island whose family in Miami were willing to pay a going rate, or ballplayers instead basically being uh, secretly contracted to these crime syndicates to parlay their big league contracts into money for them. This uh, involved multiple captures and imprisonments of Cuba, lots of dead bodies in Mexico, and hundreds if not thousands of stranded Cuban refugees in places like Cancun or Merida. But it was less risky than journeying across the Straits of Florida on like a garage-built raft or inner tubes. When superstar Rene Orocha decided to flee at the Miami airport in the midst of a U.S.-Cuba friendly series in the summer of 1991, uh, his departure, uh, he was a superstar, his departure sent shockwaves through the Cuban baseball establishment. Like, they shut down baseball, players and coaches were summoned for like closed-door meetings, and it was the first time a player who had defected was branded a traitor to the revolution. And like confidence in the Cuban system among just everyday Cubans was completely shaken by it. All based in American interventionism, by the way. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's interesting to me, too, that this trend sort of I – know, I know that there's not like a direct correlation with this. So I just want to say that in advance of my uh, statement. But there, there does seem to be a correlation in this trend when amateur athletics in America is also going through like a change, obviously not officially, in the shadows – where like there's a rise in like bribing players and players aren't like that easily able to be just recruited based on like all these weird American ideals of amateur athletics. And it almost like to me feels like it opens the door for like parasitic fucking sports uh, organize sports managers in America to, you know, see, see set their eyes on the global south for their next uh, exploitation efforts. Yeah, and a lot of this was precipitated by Araldus Chapman getting a $30 million package uh, thrown at him, which exploded the market mm. for Cuban players in 2010, led to this like massive rise in defections. Basically, 2010 was the year it all started collapsing, right? But like, Levin Hernandez smuggled out of Mexico by Joe Cubis and got a huge contract from the Miami Marlins, who had won bidding to the tune of $4.5 million plus a 2.5 mil signing bonus. But this is the other thing, right? They bring the players here, they play, but they also don't teach them about a system they've never been a part of. They don't right. know what capitalism is. They don't know what, like, this thing is. So it was like the transition from socialism to capitalism was extremely dramatic. Hernandez ended up buying a half dozen luxury automobiles, a Porsche, a Ferrari. He became addicted to American fast food, ballooned well beyond satisfactory playing weight on a diet of mainly <laughs> McDonald's hamburgers. God. And uh, washed out of the league before getting his life back on track with the help of friends and people who actually cared about him. Yes. Uh, not his team or the MLB, by the way. Or Joe Cubis, for that fucking matter, who got paid anyway. And Fidel, like, to his credit, Fidel understood the reasons for this. He actually allowed Levin's uh, mother, Miriam Carras, uh, Carreras, to travel to Miami to attend the World Series finale. And like 1975, uh, when Louis Tiant Jr.'s dad wanted to go to Boston to see a son play in the World Series. Fidel let him go too. A climax to human trafficking saga came with Jose Dariel Abreu. You know, no one really knew how he escaped his homeland, but he broke out as a rookie slugger with the Chicago American League Club. And details were finally revealed in which he <laughs> took a treacherous sea journey that co nearly cost his life and several companions, hung out in Haiti for a bit, and then the trial of his smuggler, Bart Hernandez, revealed that the ball player had to give Hernandez and his partners $5.2 million from his White Sox contract for their illegal services under threat of death. This. And like he, there were points in his journey where he was tearing out and swallowing pages from a false Dominican passport before reaching Miami immigration. Yeah, like the MLB's concept of globalization never has never actually moved from like very veiled attempts to raid and exploit foreign lands to sate its hunger for fresh talent, particularly as we've covered earlier with the decline of, of black baseball players and people who were, again, too uppity for the league, so to speak. The the, the countries where um, Cubans were having to smuggle themselves through are the exact countries you mentioned in that episode, right? Haiti, the Dominican Republic, like that's where these, these baseball camps are being set up. Where kids like die trying to get a role in like one of these camps. Like it's incredibly fucked up. Because there was such a frenzy, people were spending big money on these players, and many of them, most of them washed out. You know what I mean? Like, most of them were not 
well-equipped to adjust to the system. They were not well-equipped in a system that wasn't like the inter-socialized system. That gave them a lot of flexibility. Not a lot of flexibility that, that held them to like a very specific sort of training schedule. Like, you know, the success stories we hear are actually a fraction of the of the stories that come out. Most of these end in failure or worse, or just like an expat living somewhere. There's no clear evidence that MLB executives have been, have orchestrated or encouraged uh, illegal trafficking of Cuban athletes. Uh, they've been very willing to enjoy its benefits. They haven't wanted to bring it to an end. They haven't ever come out against it. And funnily enough, this a whole thing has been way less public than like game fixing or betting or uh, performance enhancing drugs. It has been celebrated, in fact, in North American media. Um, if you ask me, by the way, 100% they're, they're encouraging human trafficking, if not like quietly contributing money to it through like laundering or other things. Again, speculation. I'm not saying this is a fact. This is, uh, if I was a betting man, this is what I'd guess, but I am not, I am not accusing any MLB executives <laughs> of uh, being complicit in human trafficking. Also, yeah, so just to avoid Joe Baseball DMing us to to give us all the evidence against this, thank you uh, for Fuck for you, Joe Baseball, that. by the way. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, it, it could be argued that Fidel sounded the death knell for the baseball machinery he had so painstakingly built because he was, like, unwilling to sacrifice even the smallest parts of his, like, utopian dream for the benefit of keeping it going, right? You took a hardline approach and held it, and he became flexible, you could argue, a little too late. And then increasing international talent as well meant that, like, Cuban talent was the best ever in the early 2000s that ever been. The international scene became more competitive uh, overnight, which doesn't say it wasn't competitive before. Like, Cuba was very good at baseball, and Cuba still won between 2003 and 2013. It just wasn't as easy to win. Which, for people who are used to winning automatically, like that also con- contributed to player defections. And now teenage prospects are now being called in as like replacements, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Cuban stars who remained were not like playing other stars at the level of competition ready to prepare them for international events. Uh, the embargo continues to worsen, so stadiums were falling apart, um, and quality bats like started being in limited supply because even their manufacturing industries were falling apart. So. Now, uh, before we get to the last section of this all, Fidel's son, Tony, went on TV and said he had a deep interest in finding an avenue for Cuban players to legally reach MLB status, and he had a plan to save Cuban baseball. So Barack Obama's efforts at like renewed accord with the Castro government uh, were promising, and uh, Cuban officials announced that they would start working with uh, other leagues to try and release Cuban players to their Obviously not America, because the embargo is still in effect, etc., etc. But they worked with Japanese ball clubs. Inder mm. would would negotiate with Japanese ball clubs uh, for summer play and play outside of the Cuban season. Inder would retain 20%. Players would retain 80% of these like massive salaries. And it would actually be a split for Cuban professionals like doctors, teachers, healthcare workers, and engineers who were lent out either for free or in a in a you know reversed system of mm. uh, of a salary. And only players selected by Inder would have this opportunity. Japanese scouts would come to Havana, pick players. They would uh, talk to Inder about it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So a handful of stars who were late career would get this as payment for the long loyalty. But young prospects were usually not selected. Uh, this was a a huge tactical mistake on Cuba's part. Because defections just continued to rise at this point, Yeah, right? basically, because younger players saw no possibility for selection, thus little reason to stay yeah. at home. So this resulted in like pretty limited success. Like One player had a couple of million dollar contract, had a million dollar contract, but sucked. And he spent most of his time with the Tokyo Giants uh, minor league club. And also language, food, and culture was too large a hurdle to overcome. It it also, for a lot of leagues, especially the MLB, who could have put pressure on the State Department to open up this avenue as well, it was easier for them to just wait for Cubans to defect and then nab them as free agents. They have a quasi-sanctioned human trafficking operation that is now like deeply entrenched and like an industry on its own. And like on top of that, the, the government in Havana did not understand capitalist-style contracts. Uh, there was a huge lack of knowledge about this like capitalist system and stuff like that that had that they would have to engage with, right? Which led to a lot of confusion and a lot of, like, shittiness, especially for the Japanese who were like, 
this is just a basic baseball contract. What are we fucking negotiating here? I, I assume the confusion partially came into in the fact that, like, although contracts and, you know, professional sports in capitalist countries like Japan, the United States, Canada are capitalists in notion they're also very confusing within a capitalist context they're balloon-sized contracts right meant for one-year operations with no sort of longevity and also with the possibility of careers being ended at any point right like that also adds to the confusion probably to a place like cuba which is about sustainability for its people and creating sort of human infrastructure right that's like not evident in the kind of contracts that we give to um, athletes in America because in, in places I'm sure like Japan, because it's all based on like, you know, making wealth out of your wealth and investing that money and sort of like you're responsible for extending your future within with this lump sum that you're given. So I can't imagine how much this broke the brains of the Cubans. Like the capitalist um, system is exploitative in its own way, even though it has these balloon amounts of money, which is why why we're doing this episode for the most part, right, Abdul? Like, it's, yeah, we're, totally. We're showing there's a contrast, but there's also this like similarity for what they're trying to do. Yeah, pretty much. It's it's exactly like that. It's like how do you how do you reconcile like Inder's responsibility to the country and the contract um, and the payment plan with the fact that many officials just who had grown up in the system, right? These aren't like Fidel era people who grew up in a capitalist system and then converted yeah, to socialist they're one, children right? of the revolution and that that's sense. all yeah. they know and so like yeah they didn't get it and like fidel was off the scene at this point right um and like fidel it's understood that fidel would have been able to negotiate this out in a way that made sense like he was adaptable and he was very able to like do quick action and respond right but like Without Fidel, uh, you know, and you could see this as a metaphor for Cuban baseball in general, like there's not really a succession plan for Fidel, right? Raul is not yeah. Fidel Castro. Um, he will never be. And so there's just floundering and indecision because everyone's used to Fidel making the best decision at any there, given time, there, right? Yeah, there's a there's actually kind of like a viral BBC video that went around YouTube a couple years ago around the time that Raul was sort of more so instated where they interview all these uh, young people in Cuba and they all just have that kind of response that you just said. They're like, I mean, he's just not, he's just not Fidel, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what most people's responses to. How do you feel about Cuba post Fidel is we have Raul now and he's fine, but he's not Fidel. He's not daddy. Yeah. And like Cubans voted to like keep their constitution and stuff like that. Like they voted to maintain a communist system. Like the revolution mm -hmm. still exists and people, you know, overwhelmingly believe in it. Um, the difference is that, like, you know, without without like some sort of lateral hierarchy in place, uh, it's incredibly hard because Fidel was like lightning in a bottle for Cuba. And so, like, yeah, like basically, the the Cuban league is extremely depleted right now. That's why there are so many fewer teams. There's fewer defections, even because there's fewer just people to defect, and the people who do mm. defect are no longer snapped up so quickly by the MLB. You know, it's something that's not even covered in the media much anymore. Cuba has been getting trounced internationally, usually making it to the second round before getting destroyed. You know, they were embarrassed by newcomer baseball newcomer Israel <laughs> recently. And the Netherlands as well. <laughs> Two countries that I would hate and love to go see a baseball game in and find <laughs> out what kind of confections there are at the at the snack bar. And yeah, it just sucks, right? There's no easy answers in terms of where the future is. Um, mm. It's no longer an isolated baseball universe. All it can really hope for now is holding on to some sort of form of viable domestic league competition and avoiding the fate that befell other like South and Central American countries. But all that said, the Japanese, Koreans, and Taiwanese followed this American model of the sport. Cuba took its own path, with Fidel following the American model, but converting it into a socialist one. And it's like, you know, in Fidel's view, no revolutionary program implies the renunciation of new revolutionary stages or new objectives. Like, revolutions are an ever-evolving process. Revolutionaries must always shift their pragmatism and their programs. And nowhere has this been more present than... Fidel's like relationship to baseball, you know, so I'll, I'll end with a, my research here with a quote, which, you know, Cuba, which once belonged to the native Aborigines before the Spanish conquistadors came and took it from them and then saw the Cubans come and steal it from the Spanish has returned to the people just as baseball has. 
Someday, <laughs> there's a, this is a quote from Fidel, by the way. Someday the Yankees will have to come. Yankees, Y-A-N-Q-U-I-S, which is a, a spelling I absolutely love, will have to come and play against us, and then they will discover what the revolution is, since the revolution can produce such magnificent ball players, since they can defeat the players from a system that only exploits athletes. How a truly free athlete can beat the exploited athlete, how the athlete that can't be sold in the market nor sold to capitalist business can defeat the athlete that is subdued by those humiliating conditions without moral stimulus of any kind. So, I mean, like, Cuba baseball right now is on hiatus, but it's shown us a path forward and, like, a model to adopt for the rest of the world for sports holistically. Yeah, and how, like, the scars of colonialism and, like, sugarcane interventionism doesn't have to, like, collapse the country. They can take those scars and motivate themselves. Like, that's what Fidel is basically talking about, right? In terms of, like... Uh, showing up to America to come and play them is like, come and look at what like your horrors have done to us in terms of motivating us. But yeah, this is our episode on, on the second episode on Cuba. Maybe we'll revisit it in the future, uh, but hope you have a great week, everyone. Bye. <laughs>